got a green light. Good morning, everyone. I'm not so sure you're ready for this. Some of you look uh, tired and weary and worn out, much like I am. I appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning to share what I believe God has put on my heart. Quite honestly, it's still simmering, it's still distilling, so I'm not exactly sure what direction we're going to go, but in pastor's absence, I'm just hoping to get up to the plate and put the bat on the ball, advance uh, a little bit of runners to the base, to the next basin, or walk with Jesus, and we'll see where we end up from there. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we've already had church. We thank you that we've already met with you. We thank you that we've sung praises to you, that we've worshipped you, that we've exalted you. We thank you, God, that you've already provided hope to us, that you are the great deliverer, that you separate the seas, that you contest with our trials, you contest with our tribulations, you contest with the difficulties of our lives. But at the end of the day, we lay our heads down on our pillows with the clean, pure heart, the thought that you, Lord Jesus, are in control. And it's in that that we find tremendous peace. We pray, Lord, that you would have the freedom and liberty to be yourself here this morning and that we would just simply respond as you would have us to do so. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to jump right into 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. And I wanted to jump right in about a story about a young man that was raised up in the temple under the priest by the name of Eli and how his life developed and some principles or some uh, key elements of his lives that we can take from him and, and uh, implement into our lives to be like Samuel, a young guy that heard from God and responded to God. So let's open up with 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The boy Samuel was serving God under Eli's direction. Side note here. Eli's the religious man. Further along in Scripture, we know that he's blind. We know that he's not walking in step with God. We know that he's turned a blind eye to sin. We know that he has two sons in the temple involved in all kinds of immorality. But it was God's providence and God's sovereign design that this young boy by the name of Samuel would be raised up in the spirit and raised up in the education of his God. And God chose Eli to be a mentor and a discipler of Samuel. This was at a time when the revelation of God was rarely heard or seen. One night, Eli was sound asleep. His eyesight was very bad, and he could hardly see. It was well before dawn, and the sanctuary lamp was flickering and just still burning, and Samuel was still in bed in the temple of God where the chest of God rested. And then God called out, Samuel. Samuel. Samuel answered, Yes, I'm here. And then he sprung up and he ran to Eli and he said, I heard you call. Here I am. And Eli said sharply, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so he did. And then God calls again, Samuel, Samuel. 
And again, Samuel got up and he shot to Eli and he heard, I heard you call and here I am. And again, Eli got short with Samuel and he said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This happened time and time and time again. In fact, it happened on three separate occasions. And that's when it dawned on Eli that God was calling the boy. So Eli directed Samuel, go back, lie down. And if the voice calls again, say, speak, God, I am your servant. I'm ready to listen. And Samuel returned to his bed, and then God came, and he stood before him exactly as before, and he called out a fourth time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak, I am your servant, and I'm ready to listen. Now, if we really want to understand what's going on here, we have to rewind a little bit and get back into 1 Samuel chapter 1. And this says, There was once a man who lived in Ramathaim, which means height, and his name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. Right there we know that he wasn't a wise man. And the first was Hannah, and the second was Penina, and Penina had children, and Hannah did not. It was the Hebrew tradition that every year that they would make the trek to the temple. In this particular case, Elkanah would load up his family and he would make a 14-mile jaunt to a city called Shiloh, which just simply means peace. Now, Elkanah, he went down to the auto dealership and he bought that split pea green deluxe edition station wagon with a faux wood on the sides, much like Chevy Chase and Vacation. And he loaded up his family, and he was taking a trip to the temple called Shiloh. But his trip was a little different, because in the first couple of seats, he had one wife with all the children. And then in the very back of the station wagon was Hannah, isolated and all alone. Now, recently, we took a trip down to uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama for spring break, and it is 24-hour drive with my lovely family. Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. How much longer, Dad? When will we be there? This is from Manchester to Hartford. <laughs> so I can't imagine Elkanah with two wives fisticuffs going town to town. I got to stop for food. I get, I'm about to wet my pants. You name it, all these things, all these dynamics were going on in this family on a 14-mile trip to the temple called Shiloh. And it was hardly, you could say, that it was peaceful among this family. It was much like our families, highly controversial, bickering, fighting, disagreement, division, and maybe outside of all of that, maybe throwing a fisticuff or two at our big brother or our little brother. You get the picture here? Things were not good for Elkanah and his family on the way to their temple. And we find Hannah on one particular trip, year after year after year after year, we find her in the temple, and she is sobbing, and she is inconsolable in her heart 
heart is depressed. She is oppressed. She is overwhelmed with fear. She's overwhelmed with rejection. She's overwhelmed with loss in her life. She's overwhelmed with the fact that as a woman, she doesn't feel like she measures up to the other family in the car. She is absolutely isolated and alone and inconsolable. And we find her in the temple, and she begins to weep and pray. And she is so filled with angst that in her prayer, the priest Eli comes in and thinks that this is just a vagrant, a drunk woman who is shaking and stammering and stuttering and doesn't know her senses and her surroundings and what she's doing and the place that she's at. And Eli can't read the sign of the times and discern what's really going on in this woman's life. But she is in tremendous amount of pain. She has hit a personal dead end. I'm here to tell you this morning from my own personal experience that God speaks the loudest and the clearest in the dead ends of our life. I don't know what dead end you are up against. I don't know the dead end that you're facing. I don't know the financial pressure that is caving in on your family. I don't know the dead end about being in a dead end job where there's no hope of a pay raise or advancement or being respected day in and day out. When you get up out of bed and you put your clothes on and you drive down to that office knowing that it's not peaceful and it's not satisfying. I can't relate with the dead end of you raising your child up in the church and nurturing them and ministering to them in the admonition of the Lord only to send them off to the college campus or send them to the workforce and see them put everything that you've ever invested and placed in their life on hold for the next four to eight to ten years and have nothing to do with the morals and the values that God has used you to instill in their lives. I can't relate to that as a father, but I can most definitely relate to that scenario as the prodigal son and that I did that for a good 12-year stretch of my own life. But you get the picture. We're up against dead ends. And I'm here to encourage you this morning that like Hannah, that God has an apt word in your dead ends of life that will give you a sense of hope and peace, and dream, and vision, and revelation, so much so that you can have joy unspeakable in the storm, that you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding in your situations and your circumstances. Let's take a moment and listen to how Hannah prayed to God. I think this is unique. She said, if you quit neglecting me, that's powerful. Because she understands the providence and the sovereignty of God. And she knows that God can move the mountains, that God can drain the seas, that God can make a way. She knows deep down, seated in her heart and her soul, that ultimately God is somehow in control. And she has the audacity to say to God, why are you simply neglecting me? Do you feel neglected? Feel like you could be more, do more, 
Maybe you feel like God's picked you up and put you on a shelf and you've been collecting dust for a little bit. Maybe you think you have a pet sin in your life. God's mad at you. He's put you in an extended time out till you sort that out in your own strength and your own understanding. You feel neglected by God at times? Hannah did, and Hannah actually comes out and says, if you quit neglecting me and you go into action for me, giving me a son, this is where we miss it. In the dead ends of life. We want the escape. We want the trap door. We want the way out. But we haven't quite come to the place where Hannah has come in a relationship with Christ and in her prayer life. All too often in my own life, when I have a need and I'm in a dead end, or I'm feeling sorry for myself, or there's some situation that I can't overcome in my own strength, in my own understanding, I pray and I ask God for deliverance, to make a change, to remove this person. Do this for me, God. Aren't you neglecting me? But notice what Hannah said to God in her prayer. She took it a step farther because she understood the economy of God. She understood how God operated. She understood that this relationship was one of give and take. She wasn't just walking up to the vending machine and putting two bucks in and hitting D6 and getting the Diet Coke. She wasn't just simply asking for something she wanted. She wasn't asking for something that would just give her joy or her happiness or minimize the misery in her life. Hannah was asking for much more. And God brought Hannah into a position where she understood that God wanted more. That God was seeking more. And she discerned it out. That this very prayer in the temple was God working in Israel's behalf. That God was willing to raise and wanted to raise up Samuel. A prophet to Israel, to the Hebrew nation, for the next 40 years. And listen to her prayer. If you quit neglecting me, and you go into action for me by giving me a son, I will give him completely and unreservedly to you. I will set him apart for a life of holy life. When is the last time that you were in a dead end in life, that you had a need, that you had a pain, that you had a loss, that you had something missing in your life, and you came to the place where you realized that your prayer was just a little off? God, <coughs> my car's broken. It's in the garage. Can you please fix it? Can you please replace the car? This is going to sound silly. Take it a step further. God, I want a 12-passenger van. I want it white with windows, AC, CD player. I want all the options on this white 12-passenger van because I'm going to go through the highways and the byways and the neighborhood and I'm going to find every child raised up in a single-parent home that has no sense of belonging being tossed into and thrown from place to place, from person to person, from agency to agency. God, I want a car because I want to surrender it to you un reservedly for your work and your kingdom and your glory. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? 
But that was the very heart of Hannah. God, that everything that you bring into my life, I will never put my hands on it. I will never grip it and seize it so my knuckles are white because deep down in my heart I say, I own this. This is mine. Look what God gave me. God wants to answer the prayer. But he wants to do it under a certain circumstance or condition that you walk away a changed person with changed vision, with changed values, with a changed desire. That is not just what we're Christians and we're consuming, that we're capitalistic Christians, that God exists for my satisfaction and my joy, but that in fact we exist for God's satisfaction and we exist for God's joy and that we exist for God's benefit. That is an amazingly different prayer and concept and idea that we find in many of our lives today across this country where we're spoiled. Much like me. Fat, sassy, and lazy. I'll admit it. I've got a good life. I got a good job. I got a great wife. I grew out a great family. And quite honestly, I can go days on end, maybe weeks, and dare I say months, never asking God for one thing. I want you to imagine Hannah. I don't know about you, but one of the greatest feelings in my life is when my kids stretch out their hand for mine. It's a great feeling. My wife and I were laying in bed the other day and we were talking about this and she said, enjoy it. You know, there's going to be a day when your uh, son won't reach out and grab your hand. There's going to be a day when they're walking beside you and there's going to be a day when they're no longer there. So enjoy the days when you can reach out and feel your child's hand. Hannah had this moment where she had weaned her son. She remembered the vow, and she slogged along the dusty, hot trail for the last time. And it was 14 miles of holding a little, soft, sweaty, wiggly hand. And she walked up to the temple door, and she knocked on the door, and she was greeted by Eli, and she gave over the hand of her little boy to the priest. And she did a 180-degree turn and took the same trip back home empty-handed. Sure. Heart full of joy and thanksgiving for what God had done to her. 
but a reminder that it was temporal and that she was willing to release and surrender God's provision back to himself. Now think about this for a moment. Samuel grew up under Eli's tutelage. He lived and breathed in the shadow of Eli. Day in and day out, he went about his task. But there came a day when there was a day of accountability. There came a day when Samuel was no longer the little boy. He was no longer eight. He was no longer 10. He was no longer 12. He was no longer 15. But there came a day when Eli was no longer a boy. And he understood that this was now a day of decision. That this was a day of commitment. This was a day of absolute commitment and surrendering to the calling that God had placed on his life through his mother Hannah some 10, 15, 12 years ago. Imagine that for a moment. I've only watched this show a couple times. It's entertaining, but it's extremely sad. On the other side of the coin is Breaking Amish. Anybody ever seen Breaking Amish? Okay. This is children raised up in the Amish tradition. Strict code of dress, no electricity, limited education, limited opportunity. If your dad's a cobbler, you're going to be a cobbler. If your dad's a carpenter, you're going to be a carpenter. If your mom's a baker, you're going to be a baker. Your mom makes clothes, you're going to be a seamstress. Very limited. And there's this whole idea that when they come of age, that they can either stay with the Amish community and abide by the traditions and abide by the teachings of the community, or they can go out and find their own. It's somewhat entertaining to see somebody that's raised up in an isolated, controlled, structured environment, and they're sent off to Brooklyn, New York. It's quite entertaining to see the shock of the large buildings, to see the freedom that people have, the wealth that they have, the opportunity that they have. But one thing that they come face to face and they're confronted with was all these things that their mom and dad told them to stay away from them. Stay away from those that drink and chew and everything else. Live a pure life. Good luck. I know I was raised up in a very religious family. I understood the Bible. In fact, there was times when I was teaching the Bible. But when I stepped foot off of the high school campus and I went to college, I took my break. I pushed it aside. My decision was to be dedicated to myself. This is going to sound really cheesy now, given the political climate that we're in, but this was, I'm going I'm to date myself, this was in the 80s, different time period, and my uh, goal in life was to be a broker on Wall Street. And I... Idolized, and I know I might get in trouble here. I idolized Donald Trump. This is in the 80s, this is not now. But I remember sitting in the school library and I loved Fortune, Forbes, Kiplinger's. I loved all those finance magazines. I would get those magazines, I'd get my little cubby and I'd lay them out and I'd see the pictures. 
And for me, if you grew up poor and you felt insignificant or unwanted and you felt like the only control that you had was the job that you could get and the money that you could make, that was a way out. And for me, my morals and my values and my goal in life was precisely this. But notice Samuel made a different decision. He stayed. He wasn't just a believer. He understood that he belonged to God. And there was a step or a place or a time in my life where I had to move away from this idea that I believed in Jesus. I believed that Jesus was my Lord. I believed that Jesus was my Savior. I believe that God is good. And I had to move away from this mental ascent, this philosophy, or this ideology. And I had to come to a place where I no longer believed, but I understood that He died on the cross, and that He bought me with His precious blood, and that He was raised from the cross, that in my own personal death, and on my dying to self, that I accepted Him and embraced Him, that I was no longer just a believer, but I belonged that I belonged to the family of God that I belonged to Jesus kingdom that I belonged to the local church of body of believers that were trusting and loving and following Jesus the Bible puts it this way so here's what I want you to do God helping you take your everyday your ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life, and place it before you or place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become a well-adjusted, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. I might have just described the church in America with that passage. You may feel isolated and alone. You may feel rejected. You may feel that you're in a situation where you are constantly belittled and criticized. But I want you to understand this one thing. That this world is here to reject you. This world is here to chew you up, to gnaw you up, and to spit you out. Make no mistake about it. As pretty as it may seem, and as nice as it may be to you at times, understand this, that we have an enemy that is going to and fro and roaring about with one cause, seeking whom he may be to devour, to destroy, and to utterly crush and bring an end to themselves. But there's an oasis here. There's a place of light. There's a place of hope. There's a place of belonging. There's a place of intimacy and connectedness that you're not going to find anywhere else. No drug. No drink, no relationship 
Nothing on the shelves of Macy's. As nice as dogs and cats may be, they're not going to fill the void. Your wife, your children, your friends, your golf partners, no one or nothing will satisfy you the way that Jesus does. Jesus does, just doesn't want us to believe. That's just a first step. But Jesus wants us to belong. You know, I think this church, I was in a prayer room this morning, and people are praying and they're worshiping Christ and they're lifting up our pastor and other ministers in the church, and I just had this overwhelming, and it doesn't happen that often, but I had an overwhelming sense of God just saying, David, you belong. You belong. You belong. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. That you belong. You belong. Paul, you belong. You belong. Brad, you belong. Bud, you belong. Bill, you belong. Josie, you belong. Marv, you belong. You can't find that. You can't buy that. Jesus gives it to us. He buys it. He pays for it. And he freely gives it. Aren't you grateful and thankful for the sense that you can belong? What time do we have? Are we over? 11.10? I got another two and a half hours. Part of belonging is being a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what discipleship meant to the average Hebrew family. By the age of five, they had memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That would be 242 pages in my Bible. Think about for a moment what discipleship meant to the average Hebrew young man. He would have memorized the book of Genesis, the creation event in the fall of man. That's 50 chapters. He would have memorized the big throwdown between Pharaoh and Moses and having being back on the backside of the sea with no way of escape. Another 40 chapters. If that wasn't exciting enough, that he would have to memorize the book of Leviticus. The priestly laws and the duties. I encourage you, you want some exciting reading, reading re, re, read a commentary of the book of Leviticus. Exciting stuff. I know that I couldn't be Jewish because there's also the various offerings and the prohibitions of things like pork and shrimp. So they have to memorize all of these things. You move past Leviticus and then you get us some exciting material, another 36 chapters of the book of Numbers. 
Remember the census? Just nothing but begat, 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 so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. That's exciting stuff. That's 36 chapters in the book of Numbers. Then there was another 34 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy on the, Moses, on the teachings of Moses. This is all by the age of 12, by the, by the age of 8. By the age of 12, they moved into memorizing the Jewish law and the Torah. And if you were the best and the brightest, you moved on into higher education. But for the most part, people at around the age of 12 or 15 began uh, uh, being trained in their family business. Maybe it was a Jewish deli. Maybe they were working down in the Diamond District. Maybe they were uh, learning law or going to med school, things of that nature. Stereotyping a little bit, but it's okay because they are bright and they are some of the best people in the country. But nonetheless, these people were bright and they were pursuing their goals and they were pursuing the family trade. And if they were the most likely to succeed, they would generate a resume and they would go through the interviewing process before the rabbi that they wanted to study under. And they would go through the process all for the purpose of hearing these words come follow me Jesus isn't looking for PhDs Jesus isn't looking for the most gifted talent and learned human being. Jesus isn't looking for all-stars and superstars and most valuable players. In fact, the Bible says about these men that turned the world upside down that they were simple, ordinary, unschooled people. But, they had been with Jesus. They had just simply been with Jesus. That's all he's asking. He's asking you to hear the gospel. That you're a sinner and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, that you will be saved. And you're a believer. But he doesn't want just part of you. He wants all of you. wants a hundred percent. He wants you to belong. Not because he needs his ego to be stroked, but because he knows that he is the best deal for your life. That everything you ever hoped and dreamed and cried and spent sleepless nights about, absolutely every loss, every longing, every pain, every hurt, every hang-up, every trap, every addiction, you name it, Jesus knows 
that he can meet you where you're at and bump you and move you along to a place where you know that you know that you know that you belong. I'm going to turn the service over to our worship team with this. God loves you. God cares for you. He wants you to sense that you belong. You may be 10 steps away. One prayer. One friend up here. Away from hearing Samuel. 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 Come to me.